0: Sound beautiful this morning, church. Sound beautiful. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Job with me? The book of Job. So the book of Job is going to be right in the middle of your Bible. So if you get to the book of Psalms, you've went too far. We're one book in front of the book of Psalms. We're jumping back into the big story. And the big story is where we're seeing... That all of the Bible, not just the Gospels, are about Jesus. Jesus is the main point of the Bible. Jesus is the main character of the Bible. And Jesus' work to redeem his creation is the main theme of the Bible. And so we're going to see that here, Job is by some accounts the oldest of the oral traditions of the book. So in one sense, we could have started with the book of Job. It could have been our first book, since we're doing this chronologically. Most people believe that it was written down and narrated about the time when the kingdom split. And if you'll remember, that's where we, uh, where we left it back in May. So we're going to start there in the book of Job. We're going to read chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. I know it's a long, time, long way, so if you need to sit down, Totally understandable, but this is good stuff, and you need the story. All right, so it says, There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East." His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and curse God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also among them the lord said to satan for um, where have you come and satan answered the lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it and the lord said to satan have you considered my servant job that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears god and turns away from evil then satan answered the lord and said does job fear god for no reason have you not put a hedge around him and his house? By the way, if you've ever wondered where we pray for a hedge of protection, that's where we get it from. If you not put, put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand only Is in your hand only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants, servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and you will, he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, "Behold, he is in your hand; only spare his life." So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, and took a broken piece of potter, a piece of broken pottery, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Let's pray to the Lord together. Lord, this morning we want to hear from you. We don't want to hear the eloquent words of a preacher or the ideas of secular society. We want to hear from the Holy Spirit of God through the Holy Word of God. And we ask you, Lord, that you would find us where we are. Some are broken and need to be mended. Some are disheartened and need to be encouraged. Some are in sin and need to be convicted. Some are, uns- are lost and need to be saved. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would find them exactly where they are. That they would find the hope that is found in Christ alone. And that you would minister to them through these words, these ancient, ancient words of Job. God, show us your goodness so that we trust you even more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On August the 2nd, 2006, there was a 20-year-old young teacher named Emma who was teaching a classroom full of Amish students. And that morning she happened to lead them through a song that would sing of their own mortality, about the frailty of human flesh. The words go like this. Think, O man, about the end. Think about your death. Death often comes quickly. Today you may be healthy and ruddy, but tomorrow or sooner you may have passed away. Keep this in mind, O sinner. Be ready to die each day. Shortly after they sung the hymn together, around 10 o'clock, they dismissed and went out to recess. And the kids were there and they were playing. And not a thought in the world the way that kids do. And off in the distance was a man named Charles, a man that all of them knew. He was the milkman, the man that came and picked up all the milk and went and distributed it on their behalf. And there, under a shade tree, watching the kids play in recess, he drank a Coke, contemplating what his next move would be. Unbeknownst to them, Charles followed them into the schoolhouse as they went back in from recess. Charles had just experienced a great loss in his life. His little girl had unexpectedly been taken from he and his wife, and he was devastated and not coping well with it. So he'd left suicide notes back for his wife and his family. He walked in and he dismissed all the little boys, and he dismissed that 20-year-old teacher named Emma so that he was left only with 10 little girls. He said that Charles spoke up and he said to those little girls that my God has taken my little girl from me and I am angry with him and I need to hurt some little Christian girls to get back at him. He began to ask for volunteers for who would be the first one for him to molest. Emma had rushed out and called the police as quickly as she could and they came much faster than Charles had anticipated getting there in like nine minutes. And so Charles, being pressed for time, decided that what he would do is he would line up all the little girls, and he lined up all ten of them execution style, so that he would take their lives. Marion was one of only two 13-year-olds that was left there in the room, and Marion stepped up and she said, shoot me first, hoping that she would be able to buy some time for the other little girls that were there in the room, and he did. In fact, he shot all ten of them, and then turned the gun on himself. Five of those little girls died. Five of them were able to escape and end up in critical condition, able to fake and and roll and uh, shield themselves in some way. But we come to stories like that, and don't we just ask why? See, it's in the darkest moments of our lives that we have the biggest questions for God, isn't it? In fact, we can see this clearly in that picture of those Amish girls who are clearly innocent, who brought none of this upon themselves, who deserve nothing but the greatest that we had to offer them. But we can see it in our lives too, can't we? When you have a nursery that's at home, that doesn't get filled with that little baby because of a tragic loss, When one day you come home from work and your husband or wife isn't there anymore and you have no idea where they went. When one day you discover those text messages that that you would have never thought could have been on their phone. When your child abandons you. When your wife gets dementia. When cancer comes and knocks on your door. You're there and it's personal and it's real. And you got big questions because you just think, why? What did I do to deserve this? What brought this about? What is the purpose of all of this? That is... It's these dark moments in our lives that bring into question the trustworthiness of the goodness of God, isn't it? It's these dark moments in our lives that that bring into our minds all of the questions that make us wonder, is God really there? And if God is really there, is God really good? And if God is really good, is God really sovereign? That is, tragedy and suffering tempts us to put God on trial, doesn't it? In fact, I think that's what we see in the book of Job. We see a trial of sorts where God is being interrogated throughout the whole of the story, beginning with Satan and then through Job's friends, and ultimately God is going to answer in chapter 38. And so we're asking all of the deep questions, the deep questions that you and I ask, the deep questions that our world is struggling with, the deep questions that leave some disenfranchised with the faith and angry with God, and some convinced that it it isn't true altogether. But even for the most fervent believer... It can rock you where you stand. In fact, the book of Job is two different stories woven together. One is a story that is happening in heaven, a place that we cannot see but we know is there by faith. Another is what's happening here on earth, what Job himself can see. So we see an inter- interaction, a conversation between God, the heavenly host, and the adversary. And we see an interaction between Job, his suffering, his family, and his friends. And those two stories weave together to ask that one question, can we really trust God? Can we really trust God? So this morning we're in the prologue of the book that sets up what's going to happen the rest of the way so that we can have some understanding of of what the context is and the context for the conversations. We're going to look at the friends next week. We're going to look at Job's response the following week after that. We're going to see God's response on the fourth week together. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at three questions. This is a famous image of Job there laying in the ashes. Some translations call it the dung heap there on the outskirts of town where he is in the essence of his sorrow, afflicted from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. The first question I want us to look at this morning is who really loves God? Who really loves God? Now it may surprise you, this is actually the biggest question in the book. You may not realize that if you know a lot about Job, or if you've heard about Job, or the patience of Job, or the suffering of Job. You may not realize that the ultimate big question in the book of Job is, does anyone actually love God? Does anyone actually love God? You see, when you come to the book of Job, you're, you see this interesting conversation, and you just wonder, like, how does this actually play out? It says that God uh, calls and summons all of the heavenly beings before him. And there among them is the adversary, Satan himself. And he asks Satan where he's been. And Satan says, I've been going to and fro, which fits Peter's description, that he is on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. But perhaps unexpectedly, God brings his servant up to Satan. God brings Job to Satan's attention. And he says, have you considered my boy Job? Job is described as the greatest of all the men of the East. The men of the East are the wise men. So he is considered the wisest of all the wise men. In fact, it tells us a lot about Job. It says that that he is the great man of greatest character. It says that he fears the Lord. That's Proverbs' version of wisdom, remember. It says that he walks uprightly and is a righteous man and, and avoids evil. It says that he's the greatest in possessions. In those days, you weren't measured in Bitcoin. You were measured by your livestock. And he has so much of it that you can hardly count it. You can hardly even begin to number it. And some scholars even, even say that he's, he's, he's giving symbolic numbers of, of innumerable cattle on innumerable hills. That he is the wealthiest and wisest man in all the East. But he's not just the greatest uh, uh, in possessions or the greatest in character. He's the greatest in blessing. Now, do you remember back in Genesis chapter 1 how the Lord is going to bless the man and the woman? He blesses them with children. Oh, and does Job have a helping of children? He has seven sons, seven heirs, and he's got three daughters. Sons and daughters that he's close with, that he enjoys a wonderful fellowship with, that he goes and he prays with and consecrates and sets apart. Not only that, he's the greatest in devotion and piety, too. It says that Job gives offerings just because. Like, just-in-case kind of offerings. That he so fears the Lord and walks and wants fellowship with the Lord that he goes and he offers offerings on behalf of his children just in case they curse the Lord and he didn't know about it. That This is a man that is devoted to the Lord. But what's interesting is the point as God is bringing this to Satan's attention how Satan responds to it. Satan responds by saying, well duh, of course he is. Of course he's the greatest and of course he loves you. Of course he's committed to you. Of course he fears you. Of course he obeys you. Look at what it says uh, there in verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? You have put a hedge around him. You've put a fence around him. You've you've fortified Job. In other words, what Satan is saying is why would Job not love you? Look at what you've given to Job. Job is a billionaire. Job owns the, the state of Montana. Job has everything that everybody wants. you put a hedge around him. Look at his family is good and his health is good and his wealth is good. Why would Job not love you? But if you took those things away, Job would curse you to your face. That, In other words, what he's doing is he's insulting the glory of God. you understand? What he's saying is is that God himself is not glorious and great enough to provoke the love of his people. That God's people only love him because of what he can give to them, not for himself. It's the equivalent of, of going to a man and telling him that his wife only loves him because of the lifestyle that he can provide for her. Or going to a father and telling him that his children only love him because of the inheritance that he's going to leave, him, leave behind or the ease of life that he's able to provide for them. It, it's like accusing God as though he's running an escort service and paying his girlfriend to go to the dance with him. It is to impugn the glory of God. It is to insult the greatness of God. See, Satan has a particular operating system. And Satan's operating system is that of self-centeredness. Satan doesn't believe that there's anyone that loves God for who he is. They believe, Satan believes that every person ultimately doesn't love God, but loves himself or herself. After all, this is what we've seen in Satan, isn't it? Why is Satan cast out of the heavens? He's cast out of the heavens because he wanted God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be like God and not have relationship with him. What is this temptation there in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden? The temptation for Adam and Eve is that they can have what God has without having to have God himself. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 4 and Satan's there in the wilderness and he's tempting Jesus. And what is the temptation that he presents to Jesus that is supposed to be understood as the most alluring? It is that he can have all of the possessions of the earth and all of the glory of men and be bowed down before by all the great kings. And he can do all of it apart from a relationship with the Father himself. That is that Satan is always appealing to that sense of self-centeredness, of of selfishness, that that wants to please your own appetites, and your own stomach, and your own desires. That's his operating system, the way that he understands that the world works. You know, it's interesting. If I were to ask you to name something satanic, you'd probably name witchcraft and sorcery. That's the low-hanging fruit. And when we think about satanic, we think about horror films and heads spinning around and all kinds of crazy spells being cast but that which is most essentially satanic is self-centeredness and sometime, somehow that's far less vile to us most of the time so the question that Satan is asking here is does anyone actually love God or do they just love what God can give to them and the question that I want to ask you this morning is do you actually love God Do you actually love God? See, there's a subtle difference between loving forgiveness and the idea of being forgiven and loving God. There's a subtle difference from loving the idea of having your anxiety soothed by the presence of a greater power and actually loving God. It's a subtle difference in in desiring the superstitious blessing over your family and the superstitious protection just in case one day there is a heaven and there is an afterlife, and actually loving God for who he is and who he reveals himself to be for all of his glory and his holiness and his mighty might and his righteousness. That is, are you the girlfriend that needs to be bought? Are you the bride that Christ Himself has paid for? Do you really love God? Or do you just love good music or the idea of forgiveness or the concept of a higher power? Who really loves God? That's the first question. The second question that we see is: what deserves such suffering? What deserves such suffering? Now, this is this is heavy. But what we see is Satan comes and he presents and This idea that that your Job doesn't actually, your boy Job, that you say by God's own lips that he is the greatest of all the men, that he is innocent, that he avoids evil, that he's a righteous man, that he doesn't actually love you. And if you take away all this good stuff from him, he'll curse you to your face. So you know what God does? He says, I'll consent. I'll consent. I'll give my permission to you. You go and you bring affliction upon Job and you attack Job. The only thing that you can't touch is the man himself. Now, do you remember back on September the 11th, 2001, and how there was breaking news story after breaking news story after breaking news story. I can remember sitting there at White Plains, high school, watching the TV and the reporters are standing in front of the Twin Towers. And we all got it on and he's talking and there's smoke billowing up out of the tower. When all of a sudden you see the shadow of another plane go and strike the other tower. And then another report comes in about a strike on the Pentagon. And then another report about Flight 93 down in the Pennsylvania field. And it was just report after report after report. One calamity after the next. And you can imagine that if CNN had been present in Job's day, the greatest of all men, the Elon Musk wealth, the, the greatest of all wisdom, that they would have been there and it would have been breaking news story after breaking news story after breaking news story. He gets up from his coffee to find out that he's been attacked and that, that great natural phenomena had come and struck down his cattle and his livestock, that a, that a tornado or a typhoon or some sort of great wind comes and blows down his house upon all 10 of his children and nothing is left. Imagine what it would be like to walk in your boss's office on Monday and to be fired, to walk out and realize that you have to declare bankruptcy and then for your phone to ring that your whole family just died in a car accident. Can you imagine the weight? Can you imagine the despair, the chaos, the inability to process such overwhelming information so quickly? It says that unlike what Satan had declared, Job doesn't turn from the Lord. Job turns to the Lord. He says, naked I came into this world and naked I will leave. The Lord has given and now the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Satan comes back again. And there's another interaction between him and the Almighty. And he says, well, of course, of course, of course, you only let me go skin for skin. You only let me inflict a flesh wound upon him. Yeah, but if you'll just let me touch the bones of the man, the inner man, the man himself, then he will curse you. And I, again... You see that operating system of Satan, don't you? That that concept of of self-centeredness that is at the center of his understanding of how the whole universe works and how everyone relates to God as though they were him. That that if you were to afflict the man himself, the man would do anything to, to preserve himself and to preserve his health and to preserve his own ability to live. And so God responds and he consents a second time, unbelievably maybe to us. And he says, yeah, you can go and you can afflict the man. The only thing that you cannot do is you cannot take his life from him. And So it comes and... In- From the soles of his feet, it says, all the way to the crown of his head, excruciating boils break out over his body so that he goes and he sits on the outskirts of the city, on top of the ashes, a sign of mourning. Some believe it was the dung heap. Some translations say the dung heap there, out in the middle of his destitution, taking broken pieces of clay, trying to pry out the infection that is in the sores on his body. His wife has had enough. His wife has had enough. Now, she, she doesn't think th- thought about very often, does she? But those were her children too. That was her livelihood too. This is her future too. The story's talking about Job, but, but his wife has experienced profound loss just as he has. So listen to what she says. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Isn't that an interesting word? Curse God or forsake God or renounce God and die. Do you hear what she's saying? Job, you've lived your whole life as an upright man. You've lived your whole life as a man of honor and integrity and righteousness. You've offered sacrifices that weren't even called for by the Lord. You have lived to consecrate our children. Where are our children now, Job? Where is your God now, Job? What has your integrity gotten us, Job? Obviously, obviously it doesn't work. Obviously, it doesn't matter. You've done all the right things, all the right right ways, for all the right reasons. But here we are, destitute and destroyed as a family. Curse him. Forsake your integrity. Integrity is meaningless and worthless. You know, I can remember sitting there on June the 14th, 1996. We were at a Ramada Inn in Kissimmee, Florida, when a phone rings and we find out that our house has been struck by lightning. It's my 10th birthday. I can hear my mom talking to my aunt. Some of you've heard me tell this story. I can hear my mom talking on the other end of the of the of the line, and my dad's on the other, trying to interpret what's going on. And, and we're just hearing, you know, everything's gone. You've lost everything. And my mom hangs up the phone, and she says, "It's all gone. The house was struck by lightning last night, and it went through the electrical system, and the house has exploded. And there's no cars. There's no house. There's no. Possess- there, there's nothing. They're, everything's gone." And in the way that it sits with a 10-year-old little boy, I remember my dad shouting out, Oh my God, what did I do to deserve this? That's the question of Job, isn't it? That's the question that Job's wife has. That's the question that we're we're facing. I think my stool may be getting shorter here. I don't know. See if we that was odd. Get behind thee, Satan. I didn't know how long I was going to wait. Then I started looking up at the table, and I thought, you know, we're going to have to address this. (laughs) Maybe time, guys, that we invest in a new stool. I don't know. But that's the question, isn't it? That's the question. I think about so many of you that—I think about moms that have sat across, so many of you, sat across from me in my office— who have lost a baby and have miscarried a child that you prayed for and that you love, that you adored, that you already had a name for and a room ready. That you've already told your family and celebrated with your friends. And what did I do to deserve this? How did I cause this? What did I do that brought this about? I think about a friend, a close friend of mine who called me not that long ago and he says, man, I, I tried to do everything the right way. I had this, man, I am coming apart up here. I tried to start my business the right way. I tried to be generous. I tried to honor the Lord with it. I tried to do all the right things, all the right ways. But today, today the rug was taken out from under me and I've lost everything. What did I do? Am I being punished for something? See, the theology of Job's day was very similar to the theology of our day. It was a karma-like concept, an over-realized understanding of the retribution principle that what I sow, I will always reap. And if I always do the right things the right way with the right motive, it will always end up the right way. But the truth is, is that we live in a world that is just too complex and too cursed for all of that. And we live in a world where Amish little girls are murdered for nothing that they did wrong. That is, we we live in a world of disproportionate suffering. We live in a world where the people that could care less about the goodness of God are blessed immensely with possessions and wealth, prosperity and prominence. And people who give their lives wholly unto the Lord lose everything and it seems like they can't buy a break on their best day. This morning, one of the things that I want to say to you just pastorally Pastorally, Some of you are carrying some stuff that's just not true. Some of you are carrying some stuff that's just not true. Some of you think that the reason that you're unable to have children is because of something that you've done, and it's just not true. Some of you think that the reason that your dad abused you or your uncle abused you when you were growing up was because you somehow deserved it and that you did something wrong and that you provoked them in some way. And I want you to hear me say, you just did not deserve that. You didn't earn that. You've been carrying that for a long time, but you didn't deserve that. You didn't bring that upon yourself. That is not the result of your sin. Some of you have been abused by a spouse or you've been abandoned by a spouse or you've been betrayed by the very person that you love the most and you've went back and you've analyzed every single thing. And of course, you have not been perfect. And of course, you have sinned against your spouse or that person that you so deeply love and yet they still abandon you. But you, you didn't deserve that. You didn't deserve that. We live in a world Where sometimes you can do all the right things, all the right ways, for all the right reasons, and it still go all the wrong ways. That you don't always get, you don't always reap what you've sown. Sometimes you can sow all the right seeds into your children, and your children still forsake you. It's the nature of the world that we live in. And it brings the question to the forefront, why doesn't God stop it then? Why doesn't God stop it? Why doesn't God stop little girls in Amish schools from being murdered? Why doesn't God stop the abuse, abuse of, of children? The, uh, why, why doesn't God stop the abandonment of spouses and good marriages? Why doesn't God intervene? Why does God allow for the innocent to suffer? And I'll be honest with you, just transparently, I don't have an intellectually satisfying answer for you this morning. I don't know all the answers. Here's the best that I've got, though is that God himself did not just stay in heaven and let it happen to us. That God himself came and dwelt among us as one of us. And he was truly innocent. He was innocent in his attitude, in his motivations, in his desires, in his actions, in his responses. He was was pure-hearted and above evil and wise and righteous in all of his ways. And he suffered disproportionate evil there on the cross that made no sense to any of us. And he came and he suffered as the innocent so that one day he might end the suffering for all of the innocent. So that we might not receive what we have deserved, but so that we might ultimately receive what he has deserved. That the cross is the sowing and the resurrection is the reaping that the church will ultimately know. Brings us to the last question this morning. What's the point? What's the point? You have to consider all of this from Job's perspective. God knows what's happening. Satan knows what's happening. We as the readers, we know what's happening. But does God ever clue Job in? Job has no idea what's going on. Job is just hearing all the reports and experiencing all the trauma and all the pain and all the loss. Job is just being overrun and overwhelmed by all the pain and all the affliction and all the suffering. That is, from Job's perspective, it must have seemed pointless. It must have appeared arbitrary. From the perspective of the sufferer, suffering almost always seems meaningless, doesn't it? It always seems as though there's, there's no grand p- plan. And it makes you sit and wonder, as Christopher Ashe said, do we actually live in a well-run world or not? Do we live in a world in which all of these things are working out and coming together? Or do we live in a world that's just, just chaos and, and unraveling at the seams and that you may are just at the mercy of some weird natural system or as Darwin has suggested, some sense of natural selection, weeding out the weak from the strong. That's got to be... What Job's thinking. I can remember November of 2021, I took a sick day to stay home with Sarah, but on that particular day, I needed a sick day myself. I had on that day, many of you know that I went through this season of just really crazy health scenarios, and the worst part of all of it is I struggled with debilitating migraine headaches. And on November 2021, that day, Sarah's at home sick with me, was the single worst headache I had ever experienced in my life. I'm talking can't lift my head off of the pillow. And it was like that day that everything had culminated, all of the stomach surgery and the back surgery and all of the headaches had culminated into that one moment. And I, I couldn't even get words to come out of my mouth. All I could do was just lay there and weep and weep. And I remember the desperation of that moment, asking, God, why does it feel like you're picking on me? Why does it feel like you're picking on me? What an awful thing to say. But God, why, why does it feel like I just, I can't get off the mat? I can't be the dad I want to be. I can't be the husband I want to be. I can't be the pastor I want to be. I can't serve you the way that I want to serve you. I can't do all of the things. What good am I in your kingdom laying on this bed crying like a heap of mess? Think about Ora Collier who buries her husband, gets on an airplane and flies to Kansas City. Some of you remember this. She lands in Kansas City only to discover that her young son had died on, while she was en route. What suffering? How arbitrary, how meaningless it must have seemed. I, I think about uh, Mary, who just had to bury both her husband and her, her mother there in such a short window of time. I think about Kathy Jacks, who's at home right now. And every time I talk to Kathy, she has to have another back surgery, another surgery that happens just as a result of a freak accident from many years ago. And just it can't get right. And it just seems like it just heaps on her. And you just wonder, like, Lord, when are you going to let her breathe? What's going on? I think about my brother Daniel. Finds out a few weeks ago that his mom is gravely ill, only to unexpectedly lose his dad a couple of weeks later. He just feels so arbitrary, so meaningless. Some adopt and the adoption goes well. Some adopt and the adoption comes apart. Some, their wife gets dementia in their early... Uh, 60s or late 50s, and some their wives live to their hun- to a, their hundredth birthday with great help. Some go and they they marry and they commit to the marriage, and the marriage goes well, and they're married for 60 years, and all the grandkids tell the story. And some marry and commit to the marriage only to be ultimately left there holding the bag for the whole thing, and it all just feels random. It all feels arbitrary. Why are some children born into homes that will love them, and some children born born into homes that abuse them? Why can't some parents who will Love the child and raise them in the fear of the admonition of the Lord and not have children. And, And those who despise the Lord and reject the Lord have children as often as they please. Why is it, Lord? It all feels arbitrary and meaningless. It makes you wonder. But we have what Job didn't have. The reality is, is none of us have the advantage of having a narrator step into our lives and tell us what's going on, isn't it? None of us have the viewpoint of a narrator to come in and say, hey, Cody, by the way, here, here's what I'm accomplishing through these headaches. Here's what I'm accomplishing through this difficult marriage. Here's what I'm accomplishing through the cancer in your life. We don't have a narrator that steps in. but We have more than Job had. For one, we have the book of Job. We have the book of Job that lets us know from the outside that there is something bigger that's happening. There is something grander at work. We can see in the conversations at heaven, in the limits that God places upon Satan, that God Himself is sovereign. And Satan, He is on a string. He operates only according to the will of God, at the discretion of God, by the permission of God. But more than that, more than that, we have the resurrection. We have the resurrection. Has there ever been any suffering that appeared more meaningless, more pointless than the suffering of the the innocent Son of God hanging upon the cross? They're praying for the very people that nailed him to the cross. All of his disciples scatter like roaches in in the sunlight. But that was Friday. And on Friday it felt meaningless. Oh, but church, Sunday was coming. Sunday was coming. Because, you see, God is good, and God is sovereign, and Satan is on a string. And the very instrument that Satan used to afflict our Lord is the instrument that our Lord used to ultimately crush and defeat Satan himself. It reminds me of a story I heard this week of a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. He was an attorney in Chicago back in the late 1800s. And he was a wealthy man who had made a lot of investments. And he was actually a close personal friend of D.L. Moody and would support so many of D.L. Moody's campaigns and crusades. Well, he had made significant investments in uh, real estate in Chicago. And if you'll remember, there's an event that took place in 1871 called the Great Fire of Chicago. And in the great fire of Chicago, Horatio Spafford essentially walks away penniless. He loses all the money that he had invested. There was no progressive or state farm to step up to the plate for him at the time. He carries on and begins to try to rebuild his life and recollect himself. And you can just imagine the toll that this would take on him, even as a, a Christian man, the toll it would take on you. Well, D.L. Moody was going to be preaching a a campaign in London. And so his family gets on a ship and he sends them out to London. He's going to have to stay back and take care of the business. But he wants them to be able to go on vacation. He sends them over and he's going to support his good friend D.L. Moody while his family is able to see some of London. And while en route to London, their ship sinks. His wife is able to escape, but all four of his daughters die there on the ship. His wife is waiting back in New York Harbor on his arrival. And while he traveled to go go and try to comfort and retrieve his grieving wife, he began to write down some words. And this is what he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest the blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. You can hear the words of Job in the back of his mind, can't you? Naked I came into this world, and naked I shall leave, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we not receive good from God, and also not receive that which is harmful from God? I will place my trust in the God that I do not understand, the God that transcends me. I will trust that even though in this moment He is silent, even though here on Friday it appears as though the cross is pointless, I will look forward in confidence that the resurrection is coming. So this morning, I want you to remember, wherever you are, as arbitrary as your suffering may seem, as meaningless as it may feel, as silent as heaven may seem, you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. And your story, it is not over. In fact, when it is over, you'll be able to take that which seemed meaningless you'll be able to call it wonderful. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church. And we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.